Welcome back to the podcast of the River Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today in our Worldview series, Deacon Scott Kramer asks the questions, where are we and where are we going? So here's Scott. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the River Anglican Church. My name is Scott Kramer. I'm one of the deacons here at the River, and I'm excited uh, to be sharing with you today from God's Word and uh, to be sharing with you today as we continue the current sermon series uh, that we've been in uh, based on worldviews. Today is the 27th week of that sermon series. Uh, We only have 12 more to go, so stick with it. No, I'm just kidding. This is the seventh of eight in, in our sermon series on worldviews. Uh, so if you've enjoyed it so far, there's only two more. This week and next week, Pastor Jonathan will be back next week to, to wrap up for the thrilling conclusion of the series. And if you haven't liked the sermon series so far, well, there's only two more. So, so we're getting there. So uh, like I said, Pastor Jonathan will be back next week. He's out camping again uh, with his frozen fingers uh, out there. And uh, hopefully he'll get that figured out when he comes back and then also correct any errors that I say today as well. Um, But our current sermon series, as you see on the slide there, is based on the book by Peter Jones. It's titled The Other Worldview. And we have been asking the question and looking through certainly uh, the topics in this book, but basing them off of uh, the scriptures, uh, that's that's the most important. Uh, But we've been asking the question, what is a worldview and why does it matter? What is the other worldview, so to speak, that's, that's kind of permeating through our world? And how do we as Christians, how do we as the church respond well? Uh, We've defined what this term worldview means, and it's synonymous also with the term cosmology, which is an understanding of the origins and development of the universe. But uh, this quote here from Philip Ryken, "A, a worldview is the structure of understanding that we use to make sense of our world, what we presuppose, a way of looking at life, our interpretation of the universe, our orientation to reality, it is the comprehensive framework of our basic belief about things. Uh, Riken also uh, has this quote specifically that the Christian worldview, it is liturgical as well as cerebral, meaning that it's what we do, what we act out as well as what we think. It's liturgical as well as cerebral. It culminates with an everlasting crescendo of praise. So when we think of worldviews, Uh, That's kind of what we're referencing here. And so we've been comparing and contrasting these kind of two main worldviews or ways to look at the world, which Jones has labeled in in very uh, scientific terms here, oneism and twoism. The foundational contrast here between these two is our being, uh, that we as humans, uh, along with all other creatures, are distinct from our Creator God. This is the twoism way of looking at things, really the Christian gospel. Uh, and, and, and then the implications of whether we believe this, that we are distinct, that God is distinct from us, that He has created us, or whether we reject this worldview. And so we have a, a chart here that Pastor Jonathan showed a few uh, weeks ago about just kind of some quick differences between oneism and twoism. If you can, if you can see that, I apologize if the text is a little small, but uh, just briefly to go through it here, we see the differences that we look at our origins, that according to, to oneism, this idea that we're all together uh, with the divine, it really our origins are either this primordial kind of combination, the soup or the big bang. Whereas in the Christian gospel, we say in the beginning, God. The nature of God in oneism, it's, it's unsure, or it can be found within or within uh, creation. Whereas in twoism, 
the nature of God is revealed in the narrative and history of the Scriptures in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. Our identity in oneism is more of a, a humanoid. We've just randomly occurred. According to the Gospel, our identity is as a child of God, intimately known and intimately loved. Truth in oneism is found within the self. It's subjectively derived. And in the Gospel, truth is objective. It's transcendent. It's divinely revealed, coming to us from God. Sin in oneism isn't, isn't really applicable. It's a, or if it is applicable, it's really a moving target. It's however you want to uh, define it. And in twoism, sin is objectively defined as disobedience to God's word and lordship. Our purpose in oneism is personal growth and self-care, which are not necessarily terrible things, but in, in the Christian gospel, this worldview, our purpose is to love and to glorify God first, to die to self and live to God, and in so doing, that's how we grow. That's how uh, God cares for us. The last two here, our salvation, according to oneism, is really a self-actualization, finding the self and therefore benefiting the world. Again, not necessarily uh, terrible things, especially benefiting the world, but you can see the difference between this and the Christian gospel of a confession of sin and the belief in the death, life, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And finally, our destination, which might be uh, the most important piece that we talk about here. In oneism, our destination is unsure. Or this is all that there is. So let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But in the twoist looking, the Christian gospel, we have a new heaven and a new earth and eternity with God to look forward to. So just a, just a review there of what we've been talking about over the past several weeks uh, here's also a list of these uh, major topics uh, that, we've been, that we've been looking at based on these uh, two different ways of looking at the world. Uh, what we've seen is that the predominant worldview over the past several millennia, at least in the global West, has shifted from local paganized views to historic Christianity, and then we've seen the rise and fall of secular humanism, which is now being replaced with this kind of New humanity, the age of Aquarius, the neo-paganism. And we've looked at this especially considering issues that have been uh, sometimes a little bit interesting, a little bit difficult, uh, but have been important to bring up, especially issues of sex and gender, of syncretism, of the uniting of opposites, which I'll talk about a little bit more here. And last week's sermon from Pastor Jonathan, he contrasted the new philosophies of finding inner salvation versus submitting submitting to and following an all-knowing, loving, objective creator, redeemer, and sustainer. That is the God that reveals himself to us in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. And so if you've missed any of these, uh, any of these sermons over the past uh, few weeks, I'd encourage you to go online and, and take a look at those uh, just to kind of get caught up to, to hear the context of where we are uh, for this week and for next week. So for this week, we're going to look at three main topics that Jones brings up uh, in, uh, in his book, and, and this is going to be uh, saturated with scriptures as well. The three topics are a caution of the current worldviews, kind of where we are, current status, and then simply the two potential responses for the Christian, for the church, or for anyone, is that should we compromise with the culture and with the oneist worldview, or shall we choose holiness that comes to us from God himself. So first, a caution of the current predominant worldview. 
uh, Jones declares that we are now at the stage of these, uh, this oneist worldview, this neo-pagan worldview of oneism, where theory and practice are complementing one another, where the justification of this neo-pagan thought is now resulting in the rebellion of body and of mind with no shame and no sense of good and evil. That is, we're defining good and evil in our own terms instead of trusting in God. And so God has given over those who wish to do so. He tells us clearly in a letter to the Romans, the early Roman church, Romans chapter 1, verses 25 and 28. They exchange the truth about God, which he has revealed to us. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they've worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And a little bit further in Romans 1, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Does this sound familiar as we look at the world around us? Scottish theologian John Murray puts it this way. He says that the largest issue is actually not the practice of iniquity, the actual actions of, of rebellion or sinfulness or whatever term you want to use there. It's not the practice of iniquity, however much that may evidence our abandonment of God and abandonment of sin. It's that together with the practice, there's also support and encouragement of others in the practice of the same. That iniquity is most aggravated when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others and when there is a collective, undissenting approbation or approval. Now, this has led to a cosmology or a worldview of rebellion, which actually rationalizes the inversion of morality. That which God has said is good and right and true is now being defined as evil, terrible, and wrong. And that which God has, uh, has declared is not good for us is now in our culture and society being declared as good and right and what should be celebrated. This then brings a rationalization of this. It brings about a, a revolutionary change in any sort of culture, any sort of society when things like this happen. And then, maybe even worse, as we're seeing, is that there's a silencing or at least an ostracizing of any rational opposition to questioning of this uh, rebellion, of this inversion. Jones further sees that in the present dominance of this ideology of oneism, we are witnessing the determined construction of a society that rejects God and his laws and is based on personal erotic fantasy and the God within. Stay with me here. There's going to be some good news in a minute, I, I promise. But we have to set the, set the foundation here. Uh, so, and, and in reality, when we think about this in, in practical terms with, with our friends, with our family, with those that we interact with, we have to unfortunately be honest that wide swaths of our society, those whom we love, those whom we care about, and desire to share the good news of the gospel with, they're no longer challenged in a healthy way by the culture around us with the notion of the image of God, whether that's in natural law, whether that's with the creator and our creational mandate, whether it's the distinctions between male and female, or even in a, an objective moral conscience. Using the analogy that Jones refers to throughout his book on worldviews, the train of oneism is headed toward destruction. But rather than jump off the train, 
there is a Christian response. In Romans 12, what was just read by Jack, our New Testament reading, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, the instruction to us, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And verse 2 may be even more potent and more powerful. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, His pleasing, and His perfect will. Now, to be fair, when we read passages like this or, or any other similar calls, there's a few different ways that we could understand how to use this and how to respond to the culture around us. And Pastor Jonathan a few weeks ago brought up, I think, a, a, very good, um, a very good couple of potentials, possibilities here about how Christ interacts with culture. And I think we have a, uh, a slide for this as well. We can say that either Christ is against culture. Uh, I think uh, the next slide, hopefully, there will be a list. We can either say that Christ is against culture, right? That we really serve an angry Jesus who's just out to shun and demolish and and, and cast away and hate, but this really ignores the love and the welcome of our evangelistic call to share the good news of the gospel. We could follow this and say that, well, Christ is of culture, which would kind of be the exact opposite. Well, Jesus is always for whatever cultural changes are occurring, and this brings about a fluidity of morality, and this says that, well, we should read the scriptures in a new light. We should use a 21st century lens to understand how to read God's Word. Uh, I, I wouldn't advise that either. Uh, I would advise uh, looking at how the Scriptures were originally written uh, and then pulling out to apply to us. Well, what about Christ above culture? We can be an aloof or holier-than-thou church with an aloof and holier-than-thou Jesus, not wanting to touch the dirty, um, or, or even what's been recently suggested, what's called the Benedict Option, uh, which is really a strategic withdrawal from public life, uh, into more monastic communities. Uh, and a retreat every once in a while is certainly, is certainly good, certainly helpful, but this kind of takes away, again, our being a part of culture. And so the last two then are ones that I'd want us to consider, Christ and culture in paradox together, which is something that I've slowly over the past several years been, un been understanding, is that we would have an honest debate, an honest discussion about the differences and about the mysteries of life, of God, of all that uh, we've mentioned so far, that we would interact with the culture around us. Now, we don't want to stay there. That's not the final uh, where we want to end, but it's a good way to, to interact because where we would want to be is that Christ is the transformer of culture, that he is transforming uh, the society as well as, as he is continuing to transform us. Jesus makes all things new. And this is being in the world, but not of the world. It's also seeing the beauty and the goodness and the truth that is present in culture and transforming that really to go back to God's original purposes. And so following the examples of our biblical forebears, uh, none of them being perfect except for Jesus himself, uh, and also following the example of the apostolic church, we are called to display righteousness to a watching world. We react in ways that honor Christ and his message of good news. Jones uh, says it this way, 
He says that Christians in the first century lived under a regime that continually tempted them to modify their beliefs and to adapt their behavior to a culture that didn't share their essential faith. This is the, the Roman culture of the, of the first several centuries. Christians then throughout history have been in similar social settings, in cultures and under governments that no longer regard, have no regard for Christian principles. Christians are called by God in his word to the particular ideas that constitute the world's pattern of thinking and belief. In this way, we can both resist the lie and make a statement of the truth. But the question becomes, what if, what if we don't? What if we don't do that? What if we were to compromise? Or dare I say, what if we were to continue to compromise with this oneistic worldview in the culture? And so we've got to be honest about that, that we could choose to compromise. There's four major slippery slopes here. There's probably many more, but there's four in particular that Jones mentions, and I think that they're worth pointing out. The first is to fear the culture around us, and that might be very reasonable uh, due to verbal threats against biblically orthodox Christians and churches and beliefs. These now include accusations of hate speech from sharing what's in God's Word. This could be the potential loss of friends, potential loss of employment and career opportunities, and maybe even most fearful, a loss of respect amongst those whom we care about. A particular example of this is that there is a, uh, a priest in the Church of England uh, who was a, not only a priest in his parish, but also the chaplain for a local school, a local, a local church school. And he was actually brought up on safeguarding claims and accusations of being a violent religious extremist due to a sermon that he gave at this church school. Uh, and the topic of this sermon was responding to a question that one of the students had brought. I can't remember if it was a middle school or high school student. They brought up the question, do we have to believe uh, something that's being taught differently than the biblical view of marriage? And this priest, he explained in his sermon the biblically orthodox view of traditional marriage and that the students shouldn't have to be forced to believe something different than that. They, they could. He didn't, tell, he didn't you know, shake his fist at them, but he just, here's what uh, the Scripture and his church teaches. And he was brought up on safeguarding claims as if he was uh, being abusive to children. And though this priest calmly and confidently, he remained faithful to Christ in his word, he was suspended from the school. His bishop actually didn't stand up for him and let this investigation uh, continue, even though all the words, everything he had said were printed, they were recorded online just like this is. And all because he actually taught the official teaching of the national church on marriage and sexuality. You can look it up for yourself. Uh, his name is Bernard Randall. Uh, he's from Derbyshire, England. These types of situations, whether to that extreme or not, they, they call for tact. They call for wisdom. They call for grace. And we must continue to pray for one another. As St. Paul asked his fellow Christians in Ephesus to pray that, Whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians 6, verse 19. So fearing the culture. The second slippery slope is, is similar. It begs the question of seeking approval of the culture. Will cultural opposition to biblically orthodox Christianity, will it just disappear if we were willing to update our message? 
if we were willing to focus more on topics like human flourishing as opposed to good and evil, sin and sacrifice. Well, we within the wider church are certainly tempted to drift towards uh, the cultural tolerance for differing views of truth. And yet that open-mindedness of all views we see then really becomes an intolerance towards biblical views. Now, I've been tempted by this, and it's in the name of, uh, in the name of welcoming, in the name of being uh, approved of, um, to either refrain from conversations that come up uh, throughout you know, daily life, whether at work or whether with friends or whatnot, or to just kind of give platitudes of, well, there's, you know, there's many different ways to think about that, and, and uh, well, you know, we, we need to understand uh, that there's, we consider all the different ways of understanding that topic. And this is all in the name of tolerance, but I'm, but I'm missing the opportunity to be honest. And I'm missing that opportunity out of the fear of being not approved of. Anybody else felt like that before in the last decade or so? And the question really becomes, is it seek first the approval and accommodation of unorthodox or heterodox views, organizations, cultural patterns, etc., or do we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness? We do want to welcome all into the church. We want to welcome all into the message of redemption and of transformation that is found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news of great joy for all the people, for all sorts and conditions of mankind. But adjusting the message to placate the culture isn't actually welcoming. It's dishonest. It's a bait and switch at best. And at worst, it's leading those whom we welcome and ourselves into a false sense of godliness and holiness. Now, this can happen, by the way, on all sides of the theological, philosophical, or political spectrums. Uh, so I'm speaking here just as much against something like Christian nationalism as much as I would against political correctness or wokeism. This is an all-encompassing. Let's stay with the gospel. But a related third temptation, then, is what Jones describes as progressive evangelicalism. This is a compromise that we now see from within the broader church and within Christianity, what Jones calls progressive evangelicalism. This is the developing of a more attractive public opinion of Christianity and finding new ways of doing theology. That ought to be a major red flag when you hear something like that. New ways of doing theology, because in reality, this is just a veneer for the faith once are all passed down to the saints, pretending to be that. This turns into the results of this are really a religionless and doctrineless Christianity, just about the feels, right? There's no historic orthodox statements of faith, no authority and protection allowed from or expected from leaders in the church, and, no, and there's no or there are fewer moral standards that come from God's word, or even having a negative view toward authoritatively revealed scripture. I'd ask you to take a look further into Jones's book where he goes into more detail about this. I don't have as much time to get into all the specifics. But the result is, of this progressive evangelicalism, is that there's no real connection to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And finally, this all leads, we're going down the slope, we're going to come back up here in a minute, stay with me. This leads to the new Gnosticism of, of this oneist view. We see these seemingly innocuous or even altruistic goals that are coming forth from, uh, from these ideas, such as, uh, such as interfaith awakenings, 
which incorporate practices and beliefs of other faith systems, this syncretism that's really all in the name of inclusion, right? That sounds good, at least to the culture. And this tempts us and the watching world to find oneself in God and to find God in one's self. Doing things like praying to God as our mother, as the nourishing spirit of Mother Earth, instead of the transcendent, holy creator of heaven and earth. This new Gnosticism, which is really not that much different from the original in the first or second centuries, it becomes then a worldview of self-actualization and following one's inner spirit first, as opposed to following God's revealed word to us. Now, I should note that the church, capital C, writ large, hasn't always gotten all of this right, okay? And we haven't gotten this right either. But the calls for changing the church and the Christian faith, they're coming not from the tradition of prophetic calls for repentance and for returning to the apostolic witness, which we see throughout the scriptures, throughout ancient Israel, throughout the New Testament, and the worldwide church. These calls are coming from outside of the church, from the perspective of a worldview that we have to be honest is hostile to the Bible, and which we cannot hope to appease while also remaining faithful to our Lord and Savior. And so our response, here's, here's now the positive, here's now the good news, our major response here, this third point and final point of choosing holiness. Holiness from God. This includes repentance. This includes forgiveness and receiving forgiveness and righteousness that is of and from God. Jones writes that holiness isn't an ancient doctrine that's only interesting for or interested for the modern prudes of today's world, right? Holiness, rather, is the essence of the present religious conflict between oneism and twoism. And this means not just refusing the worldview that's around us, complaining and pointing fingers or canceling that which we disagree with, but embracing the worldview of holiness that comes from the gospel. Holiness as a call for our lives runs throughout the scriptures, and it's often associated with the $10 church word sanctification. Sanctification is this process of being made holy by God himself. And so let's look at a few uh, scriptures here in, in Romans 6 verse 19, the call for us. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and falseness before coming to faith in Christ, just as you once did this, for lawlessness that led to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, that process of being made holy. And as a side note, we should mention that there's some uh, pretty direct words here, slaves. Some translations will use uh, servant or bond servant, but really what we're doing here when we put our faith in Christ is we are switching masters from slavery to sin and the law to being under the yoke of Christ. In Romans uh, 6, a little bit further on in verses 22 and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you, gets, le that you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last on this slide, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7-8, St. Paul continues, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this 
disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so this is not just about personal piety or what we do on Sunday morning worship. The exhortation here is for self-sacrificial, holy living, bearing witness before the kingdoms of this world to the transformed kingdom of God, over which Jesus is Lord. This is a kingdom when all will be two. When all will be two, God and humanity, but united in love. All will not be one, because one would mean an impersonal cosmos forever alone. And so this, I believe, is a compelling worldview in a God-created universe, affirming things in their rightful, complementary places for life-promoting functions. This worldview flows from our understanding of a holy God and His holy creation or cosmos, a holy people and life, and a holy future. And so let's look at each of those just briefly here in this last point. A holy God. Again, we go to how God has revealed himself to humanity in the Scriptures. We go to God first, not our own understanding of holiness. Who is God? We give this as evidence of him being uniquely distinguished from his creation. God's prophet in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 he declares how the, the holy heavenly host, the seraphim uh, in, in, in heaven, they declare that God is holy, holy, holy. And we actually participate in this praise and in this declaration in our communion liturgy, right? The song that we sing in the middle of communion that says holy about seven dozen times, that is our joining our voices with the angels and the archangels and all the company of the heavenly host who forever proclaim the glory and holiness of God. This is the sanctus, the holiness of God. In Revelation 4, verse 8, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We again are reminded of this when we declared that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That's a holy God. He has a holy creation or cosmos. The created order has been put in place by God according to this model of God's holiness. All created things, including humans, in the image and likeness of God, we reflect the holiness of God as those who have been created and those who have been ordered by Him. And even in our fallen world, our, or God's creation, it shines forth as a daily testament to the brilliantly functioning elements of creation. I've been referencing Romans quite a bit. Why don't we go with this one? Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And so that people are without excuse. We see this, you know, the common examples, oh, we see this in a sunset, or we see this in the starry sky on a clear night. And those are certainly true, but also just tasty food, or maybe even majestic animals, right? We had a few majestic animals yesterday at the farm day uh, over at Diana's place. I have fun uh, call and response with the turkey there. That's always a fun for me. But we see this in, in all that God has created, both the beautiful and majestic, and also just the fun and interesting. And so this is a worldview that's not just true from a factual sense, this twoism, this God-separate, the gospel here. It's also beautiful from a sense of splendor. 
and therefore all the more to be trusted because of the character of a trustworthy creator. This leads to a holy people and a holy life for us. We reflect the holiness of God and His creation in and amidst a hurting, broken, lost, and unholy world. We are called to be holy people and do so collectively as the church by putting into practice that embodied self-sacrificial love with which Jesus has first loved us. The call for holy living that we mentioned in Romans uh, chapter 12 is followed by a call for this selfless living for the sake of others. And a little further in Romans 12 that we read, verses 9 through 16, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That is, those who are persecuting you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And live in harmony with one another. These are many of the reasons why we at the river here encourage things like discipleship and participating in life groups or men's groups and women's groups. Why we support and serve in ministries like the Agape Center, the Pregnancy Resource Center, Young Life. Why we minister to uh, international students and certainly American students as well. It's why we take mission trips to our ministry partners in Belize and why we send missionaries throughout the world to bring this good news and to live this out as embodied creations of God, showing the transformed lives of Christ's church and his disciples throughout the world. And so as we kind of wrap up here, we need to be reminded that you and I cannot do this on our own, right? No matter how much we may want to or no matter how hard we try, holiness only comes from submitting my desires to those of God, the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory submitting my desires to His, and then following His prompting. It's like we sang uh, now uh, several minutes ago, like we just sang in the song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so as we seek to be outposts of hope in a sin-sick world that's desperate for personal and societal connections and goodness and the common good, let's receive this gift of holiness from God as just that, as a gift to God's people. And let's live as we're called, as saints, with the promised hope in an eternal kingdom of God. And so lastly here, a holy future in this eternal kingdom. This holy future is God-centered, where we will, according to Hebrews 12 verse 10, where we will share in God's holiness. Revelation 21 verse 5, towards the very end of the scriptures, God declares that he will make all things new. All will be holy in the new heaven and in the new earth. Our hope within this fallen world is for a restored humanity and a restored creation where there will be no temptation to compromise and we will live in the presence and holiness of God forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You'd please now kneel for prayer as we continue with the prayers of the people and Mary will lead us. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at therivernrv.org, also on Facebook, 
And you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.